0: As we continue our journey this morning through the book of Nehemiah, if you have a Bible handy, would you turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 5? Nehemiah chapter 5. We left Nehemiah and the people of Israel having witnessed and having worked hard, and the wall is now... Half its height. They are. Halfway. Through the process. Of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. We know that from chapter 4 verse 6. That this has actually reached half its height. And so progress was happening. They were advancing the work of the Lord. They were seeing success on many fronts. But in the midst of. Of this success. In the midst of the advancement of the work of God last week, we noticed that they were oppressed and that there was opposition from outside of the group. And we could liken that and did liken that last week to the church today. The church today is the people of God. We are the people of God. If you are in Christ, as we sang that last hymn, in Christ alone, then you are a part of the people of God, the children of God, the family of God. You're a part of the bride of Christ. And so therefore you are in. And as in Nehemiah's day and every day and today, there there will be and is opposition from outside of the group. And we have likened this throughout the book of Ezra and also Nehemiah. We have made application along the way to our day. We even noticed in the book of Ezra that one of the tactics used by the opposition without is the tactic of political strategy. And there are other strategies that the enemy uses. Last week we saw in chapter 4 that the enemy often uses the strategy of ridicule. Simply criticizing Someone else. Simply criticizing the people of God. Simply criticizing the work of the Lord. And we see that it's no different today. As it was in Nehemiah's day. That often we are criticized. Often we are ridiculed. In an attempt to discourage. In an attempt to discredit. And in an attempt to stop the work of the Lord. And so. This morning, we're going to see in chapter 5, there is also another form of opposition. And it's not going to come this time from outside of the group, but from within the group. And I find this is often, in my experience, the hardest to deal with. The opposition and the conflict is the title on the screen, conflict within the camp. The conflict that happens within the group, within the number of the people of God, is the hardest to deal with on many levels. And we'll see that in our story today. It's hard because it is happening through interpersonal conflict within the family of God. The one place and the one group of all the world that should be unified and should be In loving harmony and support for one another. When conflict happens within the group. It's so difficult to deal with. And it's so difficult to understand. And so we must realize. That Satan uses various schemes and strategies and means simultaneously. So while this opposition is going on outside of the wall. While there were threats of war from outside of the group of the people of God. There would also be conflict from within. And so what would this do? This would divide the group. This would mean that conflict within and among the people of God would disrupt their unity. And would slow if not stop the advancement of the work of God. So often the ridiculers. The criticizers. Or the, threat, the people who level threats. So often. Especially if they come from within the group. We, we don't realize. And I, I know that some of them probably do. And some of them probably don't realize. The devastation that this is going to cause. On many, many fronts. The devastation that's going to come about. And we must simply ask ourselves this morning, is the conflict, is the problem worth the damage that it is going to cause? You must ask yourself in your relationships, at work or at home, in your neighborhood and in your church. Is this worth the damage that it's going to cause? Because there is always an effect to our words and our actions, our deeds, and very often our attitudes. So, they would be divided, and we want to see this for ourselves. Let's look at chapter 5. Now, there arose a great outcry, the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers so you see the conflict is within against their jewish brothers for there were those who said with our sons and our daughters we are many so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive there were also those who said we are mortgaging our fields our vineyards and our horses our houses to get grain because of the famine And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now, our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. Let's pray together this morning. Father, our God who is in heaven, our constant watcher and ruler, we bow in your presence this morning to thank you for your word, to thank you for the example of godliness that we read in this chapter, to thank you for the example of repentance that we see, that today may be a day that we are called to repent and to live lives that give fruit and evidence of that repentance for your glory and for the good of your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, conflict within the camp. I have two questions and a statement. Are you ready? Two questions and a statement. The first question is this. What was the conflict? Very easy. What was the conflict? But if you look back at verses 1 to 5, you'll see what the conflict was. We read it together. They, verse 2, needed food. They needed food. There was a famine in the land. And because of the natural circumstances of the rebuilding project, the people were in need of food. As you recall from previous um, messages and previous chapters that we've read together and studied together... The people of Israel were dispersed all around the city of Jerusalem, and they were all working. By and large, every one of them had their hands to the plow. By and large, every one of them had the trowel and the sword. They were willing to defend their people and their homes and the work of the Lord as they were also engaged in building and doing the work and the labor that was necessary to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. To reestablish the honor of the people of God and thereby establish the honor and the glory and the majesty of God himself. And they were doing this. But because they were doing this, because they were staying up day and night, they were having to keep guard throughout the night and they were having to keep guard throughout the day. Because, as you recall, the enemies were threatening to, to bring war against them as they built the wall. But now we see that because of this natural outworking of their circumstance, we also see that there's an inner conflict that begins to arise from within the walls, from within the people group of Israel. Namely, they needed food because of the famine. And in verse 4, they were burdened with taxes. (laughs) And somebody should definitely say, Amen. (laughs) They were burdened with taxes and it was difficult for them to raise the taxes. And so they would have to mortgage off their fields. They would have to mortgage off their vineyards because they had to pay the tax. And so what happened was the rich got richer and the poor got poorer. And this is exactly what we see today. History repeats itself, my friends. And what we see so often in the Bible, and as we read the history um, of the world, and the history of nations, and the history of the church, we know and realize that history does repeat itself. And what we are seeing today is a system of capitalism gone wrong. Capitalism may be a good system indeed, but you have to remember that human beings are fallen into sin. You have to remember that all of our faculties and our reasoning is fallen and corrupted by sin. (laughs) And therefore, what could be a wondrous, a wonderful, glorious system for social life can, by the nature of sin over time, become corrupted to the point where it is a travesty and a great, hideous sin in the eyes of God. And that's exactly what was happening among the people of God in Nehemiah chapter 5. And it is exactly what is happening today. So, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. and, And what makes matters worse, as I pointed out, is that this is taking place among the family of God. These are the brothers and sisters within the family that are exacting interest. High levels of interest from their own people. They are putting heavy burdens upon them. On top of the burdens of the nation that is ruling them at the time. And so outside of the civil government, the the powers that be are putting this tax upon them that they must pay. And here we see that what makes it worse is that the interest is coming from their own brothers in the family. And so this was a conflict brought about by nothing less than greed and covetousness. And it's the same thing that is driving many people in our country today. This was a self-advancement, an attitude of self-centeredness and self-advancement with no concern for anyone else. They had the philosophy that could be summed up in the quote, you handle your business and I'll handle mine. And may the best man prevail. This was the attitude. But you must understand this in light of who they are. You can understand that sinners would sin. (laughs) We don't need to point a finger and wag our heads at people outside of a saving relationship with God through Christ if they sin. (laughs) We don't need to do that. We don't need to do that. But when it happens within the framework of the people of God. Then we have A great problem. And that's what was happening. You have to understand that God had called these people to be separate and distinct from all the other nations of the world. He had called them to live in a way that was different from the other nations. Why? So that he would be exalted. So that he would be honored. So that all the nations of the world would know that there is a God in Israel that is the God of heaven and earth. And he's not like any other pagan God. For example, in Leviticus 19, as we see the outworking of the law that was given to this people. If you look in Leviticus 19, and I do want you to turn there if you have a Bible and would like to do so. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus 19. And um, let's begin reading in verse 9. And I want you to notice, especially when we get down to verse 18, because you're going to see a very familiar phrase. So beginning in verse 9, this is the instruction from God. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. Don't go back and scrape everything up that you can get. Don't get all you can and can all you get and sit on the lid. Don't have the philosophy that I'm going to just hoard up all that I can hoard up for myself. God says, don't do that. And you shall not strip your vineyards bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. Why? You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, the the outsider. Leave them. He says, I am the Lord your God. See, they were to live in such a way that they would show that they were not filled with greed. And they were to live in such a way that they would provide for the poor. And for the stranger, outside of their group, verse eleven, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, you shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not profess, oppress your neighbor, or rob him. Don't oppress him. God says, the wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night into the morning. In other words, pay. Your workers. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor. In other words, don't be partial to the poor because they are poor, or refer to the great because they are great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. But you shall reason frankly with your brother. With your neighbor. Lest you incur sin because of him. And we're getting close to, ver- to the verse that you'll remember. You shall not take vengeance. Or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But you shall love Your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Jesus said the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. All that you are, love God. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. And he gets it from Leviticus 19, 18. And so there was sin In the camp of the people of God. They were breaking the commandments of God. And there is often people in any group. Regrettably even within the church. Who are more concerned with their own gains. Their own agenda. Their own advancement. Than they are with the honor and the glory of God. That they are with the well-being of other people. Even in the New Testament. We find that this is the pattern to live by. If you are a child of God. The absolute contradiction to this kind of attitude and this kind of behavior is found, for example, in the book of Philippians. In the book of Philippians chapter 2, we see a major example and a major exhortation to the church to be a people that is not self-centered. This is not self-advancing, but it is concerned for the welfare and the well-being of others, especially those within the household of faith. Listen to what he says Philippians two: one So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort of love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy complete my joy, how by being of the same mind, having the same love? being in full accord and of one mind. And then here's the admonition. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then the great hymn, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the way the church of Jesus Christ. Is to look and to act. And the attitude that we are to adopt. Is the attitude of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who humbled himself. And made himself a servant. Although he is truly Lord of all. We see this acted out. In the book of Acts chapter 2. I want to point this out as well. Because I think it is a very. Good example of what we're trying to drive home this morning. In the book of Acts chapter 2, as we see the early church working out this kind of attitude and disposition. Listen to Acts 2.42. Acts 2.42 and following. And they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching. So they were submissive to the teaching of the word of God. They were devoted to it. Not only that, they were devoted to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all, listen to this, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing them the proceeds to all. As any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so here we see a prime example of the attitude of Christ. The people who had a whole lot that came to faith in Christ were willing to sell part of what they had, not so they could invest in more stocks and bonds, but so they could give to those who were in need. When was the last time that you or I prayed that God would bless us to have a better financial situation, not so we would benefit, but so we would be able to help other people? That's number one. What is the conflict? It was a conflict brought about by greed and covetousness. And even among the people of God. Second question. How was the conflict resolved? Very simple. How was the conflict resolved? And I have six statements of how it was resolved. And they all deal with the action. And leadership of Nehemiah, are you ready? Number one? Nehemiah was moved to bring about righteousness and justice. Nehemiah was moved to bring about righteousness and justice. If you look there. Going back to our story in Nehemiah chapter 5, he says in verse 6, I was angry when I heard their outcry and these words. He was angry. He had a righteous indignation. Listen, the child of God is not only characterized by a humility and a love for brother and sister in Christ and a love for the world, but also characterized by holy anger. The people of God are characterized by having this indignation of the soul when they see the injustice of the world. They see when you and I as Christians see the injustice and the unrighteousness and the evil of the world and how people take advantage of other people for their own gain and profit and advancement. It should break our hearts because it breaks the heart of God, our Father. And we should feel the anger of God's wrath that He feels if He is in us, in us, in our souls, in our inner being. We are united with the God of heaven. He resides within us and therefore there is holy, righteous indignation that moves us to advance and to call for righteousness in the land, to call for justice in the land. And it will get more and more difficult for you and I to do that in our day. But we must do that. Humbly, lovingly, courageously, we must move, be moved to bring about righteousness and justice. Number two, Nehemiah was moved to promote a more godly character among the people of God. One of the things that we see about him is that he was moved not only to advance righteousness and justice... But he was moved to help promote, cultivate, and nurture a more godly character within the people of God. So, you and I this morning have the same mission. To make disciples who make disciples. What is part of making disciples if not to call people to righteous living? If not to call people to godly character? And to point out, if necessary, the flaws that we see in one another. That would help promote and nurture and cultivate godly character among the people of God. Number three, Nehemiah was moved with compassion to help the oppressed and poor of the group. He was moved with compassion to help the oppressed and the poor of the group. He was concerned that these people were being oppressed. When was the last time you sat down and cried and prayed because of the oppression of other people? You may have it good, my friend, but others don't. You may be well off and well to do, but there are many that are not. And we should not get up on our high horses and look down with disdain and turn up our noses. We should be moved as Nehemiah was moved. As our Lord was moved, in the book of Matthew chapter 9, it says that Jesus was moved with compassion upon the people because they were like sheep that did not have a shepherd and they were oppressed by their leaders. And we should be moved no less to help them. When we can, where we can, how we can, to the degree that we can. Number four, Nehemiah was moved To confront the sin within the group head on and with great leadership and courage. Nehemiah was moved to confront the sin of the camp head on and with great leadership and courage. This is not something that the world enjoys and much of the church today would look on and say, oh, no, 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 we don't want to hurt anybody. But my friend, Nehemiah is a prime example from the Bible that we must stand for righteousness. We must stand for the honor of God. We must stand for the integrity of the Word of God. And we must stand and promote and cultivate if it means to confront head on the sin within the camp. We must do it with courage, humility, prayer, and love. They were charging their fellow Jews with a high interest rate. They were oppressing them and bringing them into bondage. And one thing that surprised me and one thing that I want to point out this morning is that it seems as if this was an acceptable practice within the society that Nehemiah and the Israelites lived. Do you get that feel as we read that? This is just something that's going on day by day and no one seems to care And it's happening today, and we must understand that although something may be socially acceptable, it does not always mean that it's right. Something may be socially acceptable, but it does not mean that you should take advantage of that social right. I started to call this sermon, don't always demand your rights. Just because you have a right to do something, doesn't mean that it is right to do it. Just because you have a right to do something doesn't mean that you should do that. Oh, my friends, what a world this could be. What a church we could be if we exercised that principle. That if we said, I have the right to do this, but I'm not going to. I'm going to defer my right for the sake of my brother, for the sake of my sister. I I don't have to get my way here. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. What a blessing it would be if we would follow the example of Nehemiah. Do you understand that what was happening was actually what I'm going to call this morning the anti-gospel? This is the (laughs) anti-gospel. Because the people had been brought back by God's mighty hand from Egypt. He had delivered them from their oppression And he had brought them out of Egypt and into the land of plenty. He had blessed them with freedom. And yet now they were turning around and taking the freedom that they had from God. And using it as a tool to oppress their own people. You and I are free in Christ. But we're instructed not to use that freedom. As an occasion for the flesh and to please ourselves. This is the anti-gospel. Because of the hard times, instead of reaching out to those who were less fortunate, they seized the opportunity to make themselves richer at the expense of their own people. Bringing them back into oppression and bondage. But you see, this morning, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the good news from God, is that you can have freedom from bondage. You can have freedom from oppression. You can be free from the bondage of sin. That's the gospel. You can be free from the bondage of sin. Sin no longer has to have rule in your life. Sin no longer has to condemn you to a devil's hell. But you can be free from the oppression and bondage of sin through Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ lived and died on the cross for sinners so that you could be free. Not so that you could be brought under another bondage. And so if we live in this self-centered, self-advancing, self-everything attitude, we, we live and we treat others in a way that is the antithesis of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number five, Nehemiah was moved to confront their dishonor. Of God. One of the things that drove him to action was he knew that this would bring dishonor to God. If you look there, he says in verse 9, So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. It's not good. And then here's where he says very explicitly, Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? To prevent the taunts of the other nations. He knew that they were breaking the commandments of God. And therefore they were revealing the true condition of their heart. Namely their rebellion and disdain for God. And against God. They were minimizing the supremacy and the sufficiency of God. What is it? What is greed? greed is driven by a desire to provide more for yourself so that you don't run out so that you have all that you want or all that you will ever need and to be able to buy and to purchase the things that you desire but if you reap all of your vineyard and get everything that falls on the ground if you reap every bit of the hay or the all of the uh A grain that's in your field all the way up and get all the corners very clean so that you can have every bit that you can get. What are you saying? You're saying God can't provide all you need? Surely, this is what that attitude reveals. God is not sufficient. I've got to do this. I've got to provide for myself. But Paul writes in the church of Philippi in Philippians chapter 4. And he says, my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. The psalmist David said, I once was young and now I'm old. Yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging for bread. What was he saying? God provides for his children. (laughs) You don't have to hoard it up. They were dishonoring God. He confronts the reality that the outside world is looking on, and when they see that the people of God are living by the same sinful principles that the rest of the world is, there's no difference. This breaks my heart so, so often that the world is criticizing the church, and I have to look and say, rightfully so rightfully so when the world when the people within the church look and act by the same principles and attitudes that the rest of the world lives and acts by we bring this honor to god we bring discredit to the gospel that we proclaim with our lips oh come to jesus <laughs> And they look at us and they say, I don't see any difference in you and me. Number six, Nehemiah was moved to call them to repentance. How was the conflict resolved? A man of God filled with the Spirit of God was moved by the power and the Word of God to call the people of God to repent. To repent. Verse 11. He says, return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Give it back. Repent. Do what is right. And this is another thing that we've almost lost within the evangelical church today. That people are called to follow Christ by repenting. Of sin. Turning from sin. Renouncing sin. Now you're not going to live a perfect life. We know that. But don't use that truth. That you're not going to live a perfect life. As an excuse to sin. Don't use the reality that we still struggle with the nature of sin. that we still have a battle of faith every single moment of every single day. As an excuse to submit to sin. Because the call to follow Christ and the call to salvation is a twofold call. It is a call to repent and to change and to believe on Jesus Christ. To trust in Him and Him alone and His all-sufficient work on the cross. To be the means by which you are accepted in, by God and, by the, and, and the means by which you are forgiven of sin. And brought into a peaceful relationship with God. In verse 12, thanks be to God, they respond with obedience. And they go on to make a covenant agreement. (laughs) Nehemiah says, it's not enough for you to say you're going to live this way. Let's get everybody up front. Let's let everybody see everybody saying, hold me accountable. I'm not going to do this anymore. Do you see this pattern and this principle of living within the people of God that is totally applicable to us today? That the church is the family of God, the people of God that are called that are that are to call one another when we see error, when we see sin, humbly, lovingly. Yes, do it, but do it. Call one another to repentance, and then hold one another accountable. To what you say you're going to do. Thank God for the end of verse 13. He says, And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. So here we see the positive effect of humble, courageous, God honoring people-loving confrontation of sin within the camp. Have you responded to the call of God with repentance? It's just as necessary today as it was in the day of Nehemiah. Did you know that it's necessary? Repentance is absolutely necessary. Here's repentance. Change of mind, change of heart, change of attitude, change of lifestyle. That's what repentance is. Now, you'll do it only because God is doing a work in you, because you don't have the power to do it on your own. But God may be calling you today through the preaching of His Word, through my lips, to repent now, to have a change of mind. And the heart and attitude to live right according to the word of God. Let me close by giving you some scriptures from the New Testament, from the mouth of our Lord and his apostles. Listen. Jesus says Matthew four, seventeen. Matthew four, seventeen. From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what is the word? Repent. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now, after John, John the Baptist, was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, here's what he said, in summary form, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Listen, this morning, the kingdom of God is at hand. If it was at hand when Jesus was here, how much more can we say with conviction and authority? The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's right before you. Repent and believe the gospel. Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, verse 7 and verse 12 and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And then in verse 12 it says, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Repent. In Luke chapter 13 verses 1 to 5, Jesus tells a parable. You know why? To drive home the importance of repentance. Listen to what he says. There was some at the present time. Who told him that is Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices? And he answered them, Jesus did. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Do you think people are suffering worse because they're worse sinners? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Acts chapter 17, verse 30. Acts chapter 17, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to repent. Have you repented? Are you trusting in a vain profession of faith many years ago, walking an aisle, filling out a card? Or have you experienced the God-wrought change and have lived in light of that change ever since? Well, that's the two questions. What was the conflict? How was the conflict resolved? What's our statement? In closing, number three. Here's our statement. In verses 14 to 19, here's the statement. God rewards our good works for His glory and for the good of others. God rewards our good works. Your labor is... Your steadfastness, your faithfulness to God does not go unnoticed. You may never be recognized. Your name may never be in lights, But every deed is recorded in heaven. And God is, Jesus is coming. And he's coming with his rewards with him. And you will not lose those rewards that are done through the Spirit of God in accordance, in obedience to the Word of God, the glory of God, the honor of Christ. They will, You will not lose your reward. If you look in those verses, what Nehemiah says in verse 19, chapter 5, verse 19, Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. There's a principle there that Nehemiah knows. He knows that he has sacrificed. He hasn't, he hasn't taken the rights that he had as a governor. He could, have, he could have enforced the law so that they would have to give him the governor's allowance. And he didn't do it because he knew that it would oppress the people. He knew they couldn't handle it. So he says, God, remember what I've done for this people And I'm taking from that, this statement is true. God rewards our good works that we do for His glory and for the honor and for the good of others. He had a motive of God's honor. Verse 15, in the latter part of verse 15, he says, I do this because of the fear of the Lord. Secondly, he had a motive of a continuation for the work of God in verse 16. He, he, he was moved to do this because he had a motive. What was that motive? To continue the work of the Lord. Third motive. He had a third motive in verses 17 and 18. And a ve- especially look at verse 18. And that's the motive of the good of the people. Look at verse 18. Now that was prepared at my expense for each day was. And he tells what it is. And he says, yet, I, yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor. Because. Here's his motive. Because. The service was too heavy on the people. He had a motive. He cared for people. He had a motive to advance and to finish the work of God. He had a motive to honor and glorify God. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 to 15. It's talking about you and me in, in Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, capital D, the day of judgment, will disclose it. Everything you've ever done, everything you've ever said, everything you've ever thought will be there. It will be there. You say, nobody knows what I'm thinking. God does. Nobody knows why I'm acting this way. God does. Nobody knows. God knows. Each one's work will be manifested for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. That fire is representative of judgment and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up he will suffer loss although if he is a true believer says he will be saved only through fire. And I leave you with the words of Jesus Christ. Matthew 10:40 40 to 42. Matthew 10:40 40 to 42. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, the most menial task, just giving a child a cup of water because he is a disciple. So the little ones, I think in that context is disciples, not little children. Because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. (laughs) Isn't that wonderful? What's that going to be like? It's going to be the most embarrassing moment of your life because everything that you thought Nobody would ever know they will. It'll be the most humbling experience you'll ever have. I guarantee you. You're standing there in Jesus, the host of heaven. And you'll be humbled to the dirt because of your sin. And you'll be humbled to the dirt because in that moment you will fully understand what the grace of God is. You'll fully see. That God in amazing grace. Made. His son to be. The sacrifice to pay for all of that sin. Every bit of it. So that you could be set free. From the punishment of hell. To the delight of heaven. And as you go through. Through. I don't know what it's going to be like. But you who have lived in faithful obedience to God's word. For every one of those. You will receive a reward. And it will be the greatest day of your life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. For the reality of judgment. For the reality of heaven and hell. We thank you for Jesus who died in our place and for our sins. That we can stand before you broken and ashamed and yet accepted in the beloved. Accepted through the blood of Christ. The righteousness of Christ. Clothed in his righteousness. We stand to hear the words well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter in to the joy of your Lord. Here's your rewards. Thank you today that we can have an eternal, peaceful relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And thank you for the gifts of repentance and faith. And so if there's one here today who has not, turn from sin, and trust it in Christ. I pray they will today. I pray through Christ, and I pray in His name and for His glory. Amen. Amen.